The Peace Dependency Podcast is brought to you by Total Radness. Shop your Goofy Food Controller TWO merch and CTWC approved hardware on TotalRadNES.com. Welcome to the Peace Dependency Podcast. I'm your host, Frank, also known as Sir Mazer. Today we have YouTuber and 2021 CTWC Gold Bracket player Cobalt on the show. Cobalt broke through with the 2021 YouTube video about the Hydrant Dude 1.6 world record. And we talked about his YouTube channel his competitive career or lack of competitive career and the always changing landscape of NES Tetris. This is our conversation. Cobalt, welcome to the Pista Penises podcast and thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, first question is always the same question to everyone who's new on a podcast and that is how did you get into NES Tetris? So that's an interesting story. I think I started the same way as a lot of other people. And so to go back to like 2018, this was late 2018, and I was already getting into NES games, but not Tetris. I was more interested in uh, Mario speedrunning at the time because it had a major boom that was, I think, when the world record had traded hands like four or five times. And then sometime around then in like October, I had gotten recommended the uh, Cosmic Tetris World Championships Explained video by a game scout. And that was the first video I'd ever watched about Tetris, let alone classic Tetris. And yeah, I was just honestly kind of enthralled by that video. The in-depth explanation about strategies, uh, the sort of thing about juggling, you know, upcoming pieces in your stack. It just, for someone who had no idea uh, anything related to Tetris, that was an instant hook for me. And yeah. So then the story takes a bit of a turn because I'd picked up Tetris on just some random uh, website, like a classic Tetris emulation type thing. And I wasn't the best at it. This was for a few months. I think my personal best had to be like 50,000. It wasn't that good. And then I kind of forgot about Tetris for two years. And so from 2018 to 2020, I barely even thought about the game after. But then I'd gotten recommended a second wave of videos from the 2020 World Championships. and. Still being new to the scene, that was interesting because I thought everything was still live, like the previews on YouTube were all live uh, games that were going on rather than being ported over from Twitch. And yeah. so that was a second hook again because some time had passed and I'd been looking for new games to get into and had been sort of reminded about the scene. And so kind of told myself, hey, I think this is something that I could really enjoy and get into further competitively. So what made you decide that you wanted to see Game Scout's video? Um, I think the, the branding of the video was just very well done. It had played into what I'd already been watching because that was also when uh, a lot of summoning salt style videos 
uh, had become popular. Uh, he yeah. Had done some fantastic videos about Mario. And so seeing a video in that exact style was, it was completely perfect for the time. And so already being into some NES games, it had further motivated me to just understand them a bit more because, I mean, NES games are unique considering that it's 30 years or more of history. And so seeing those games still play today is such an interesting thing. And I wanted to take part in it. So then after you saw the 2020 World Championship, you were shocked that they were playing uh, from their from their own room? Uh, yeah, I think, well, that helped uh, put the scene a bit more into perspective because I'd seen some videos uh, shortly after the 2018 World Championship about just small anecdotes, like small matches when people had uploaded their own stuff onto YouTube. I think that's how I saw the Joseph versus Jonas game. And so, yeah, that was interesting. Of course, that was around the time of uh, COVID. And yeah. so it was, I think that was also an extra foot into the door because it was less of like a one destination type event. You know, you could play it from anywhere. And of course, from 2018 to 2020, a bunch of online tournaments had sprouted up. So that was uh, additional interest because it wasn't just that I had to show up and try to impress, you know, across the country in Portland. I could play it from my own room and engage in the competitive scene from there. What did you do to pick up the game in 2020 or after you saw CTWC 2020? So I had started playing competitively, or at least trying to continuously improve rather than playing casually in November of that year. And I, again, started on emulator and it wasn't the best setup because I was trying to hyper tap and my keyboard didn't really allow for anything above like eight hertz. And so coupled yeah. with me just learning the game, it was a bit frustrating at first, but I had kept track of all my uh, stats and that was at a time when, you know, it was about surviving as long as possible rather than scoring Tetris. So I had done level nine starts and getting to, you know, my first ever transition and then getting to like level 12, level 13. That was just super, super exciting. And so in November alone, I think I had improved uh, to about like 300,000, 400,000. Uh, yeah on a 15 start. And that was when I realized, you know, I should make the jump over to getting an official NES, which I had gotten later in November. Uh, with the original cartridge, Game Genie? Uh, no Game Genie at that point. It was just all original hardware, NES controller. And that kind of marked the beginning of like my official grind to getting better at NES Tetris. And did you want to play the desk playstyle or the hyper-tapping playstyle once you got the original hardware? So I didn't uh, see too much interest in DAS just because I've been hyper-tapping on uh, the emulator. And so initially, I just tried to mess around with a ton of configurations for hyper-tapping. And I wasn't too fast when breaking in my controller, but I just found it to be a bit more consistent, and it let me focus more on uh, like proper stacking, learning the fundamentals at the time. I wasn't too concerned with whichever my playstyle was, as long as I was learning. So did you join the community by then, or were you still playing on your own? So it took until I got my first half max out, which was in December of 2020, to consider joining the scene. I didn't know what the threshold was for being, you know, a top level or like just like a decent uh, player at that time. And so I waited until I had improved enough so I could join in, <laughs> join in the discussion and, you know, have something to share. And so around that time, I think I joined and posted my first uh, PB of 500,000 into the PB's chat. And that that definitely marked the start for me for uh, getting into the community and also a motivation to improve. 
was a big part of it. I mean, it took me almost a year to get my 500k PB and I joined the community, started a podcast and all that. So the threshold of joining is pretty low, fortunately. Honestly, a good thing because ease of access is a very big part. And I think that was the great thing early on is that I'd gotten a lot of uh, motivation and sort of, uh, yeah, motivation from other people, even when I had that PB that low, and I was worrying for nothing because everyone was so supportive. How did you get more involved within the community after that? After the 2020 World Championships Top 8, I believe it was also mid-December, that was a point where I wanted to... I, I think I realized at that point that I wanted to see if I could play in a high-level tournament. And so that's when I started posting more and uh, talking to a few people for the first time. I think it had been a while uh, after that that I would end up joining uh, VCs in the greater discussion, but I started to be a bit more involved with seeing how I can improve and also seeing how other people can improve. Yeah. And did that work for, for your PB and for your play? It did. I didn't improve as fast, so I had played so much in that first month to get from nothing to 500,000. And then I think like a lot of people, when they reached level 19, I had slowed down a bit. I... My PB jumped to about 700,000 in early January, but it was still a bit slow. It was off and on with a lot of uh, chokes into uh, the later transition or the, the post-transition yeah. phase. And so it did help. And I think getting a lot of motivation. I hadn't been recording at that time, but I'd been picking up information that I could use for my play. And that was also when I'd been following other people's advice for who to watch. And so at that time, I'd been watching uh, some of the tournaments for the first time and watching specific people like. Tristop, Dog, Joseph, and kind of just adapting based on how they stacked. And that was a big uh, boost to my play. And you still use the tips that you gained back in the day uh, uh, to this current day? Uh, definitely, yeah. I think I forget it a bit when rolling, which we can get into that discussion later, uh, on faster speeds. But for 18, 19, it's a lot of the fundamentals still show themselves. And... I think it's interesting to see how my play has changed since then. Because some things have stayed the same, but at the same time, I've also picked up a lot of new things, new placements or adjustments that I would have never seen back then. So what are the things that you say are still the same? Uh, I'd say just fundamentals of building out your left and some of the burns is that I toyed around with aggression very early on. And in some of the practice sessions, I just didn't know what the best uh, levels of stack at were because you'd have times where you'd go super aggressive and then the stack would fall apart with any bad sequence. So it was managing that risk. And I think that was something that has carried over with me since then, definitely. Yeah. And what do you think is the biggest advantage that you got of tips that you got that boosted your gameplay? Oh, that's a good question. I have to think about that for a second. I think a lot of the uh, playing with the next piece in mind was a big part because I'd always been super interested in some of the adjustments that could happen. Yeah. And so like seeing things like the five and below or Vits, because I remember Nanu has some insane uh, Vits setups. Uh, well, that's an oxymoron. Uh, Vits is in the 2020 top eight. And so seeing some of those just opened up an entire new world for me because when you're learning very early on, it's already worrying about the piece that's falling on the screen. But then having that predictive power uh, opened up so many things for me. So I was able to play 
and keep my stack uh, more optimized in mind for those next pieces. And the adjustments were just so satisfying. I mean, I love it when play is set up for vits and a couple of weeks later, a, a lumbar is coming and the vits is completed or they set up for, what do you think? It will be a JTUC or an LTUC and they use the Z or an SPs and rotate uh, spin rotate that to, to burn a line. It's so creative. And when I give commentary or restream those plays, I still think, oh, they're going to tuck in a J or, or they're going to tuck in an L, then they spin rotate an S or a Z piece. And I'm like, oh my God, I've, I would never think of that. Yeah, even in the era of, you know, post-29 play and people trying to get to the double kill screen, seeing those moves on level 18 and level 19, it still, like, uh, sets apart the competition. The players who just know everything from the players who are still trying to learn those things. I think my favorite yeah. is the, uh, it's the flat S into a T tuck, like the, the T uh, tucking and spinning to the left. Yeah. Uh, Tristop, I think, popularized that. I might be wrong about that, but I still love that one. Seeing that for the first time was kind of just crazy. It's amazing what the players over the last year did to this game uh, compared to, the, like you said, NES game 30 plus year history. Yeah, the scene from when I joined compared to today, it is vastly different. It's similar in some ways in how, I mean, a lot of the top players are still the same, but it's changed drastically in how people approach each phase of competitive play. But honestly, that surprises me that the top players are still the same compared to two years ago. I mean, two years ago, we were in the height of the domination of hyper-tapping. Uh, rolling just got uh, around the corner. People were a little bit skeptical if it would work or if it wasn't going to work. But the time and the speed that top players like Dark, Pixel, Andy, Sidnav all adjusted from hypertapping to rolling is impressive to me. Oh yeah, definitely. And 2021 was a benchmark year for seeing the entire scene shift. Like I think some people, including myself, honestly, didn't realize how quickly the scene would have to adapt to this new playstyle. And so I can remember back in March of 2021, this was when Cheese got the first 1.3 in competition. And I don't think I really knew much about what rolling was at the time. So I didn't know what to expect, but seeing that game and seeing the reaction to it in CTM and elsewhere, I think that's when I realized that this was going to shake up the scene. And I just didn't know how quickly it would happen. That year, Hufflepuffus rolled his way to the finals of CTWC, came up short against Doc. But I knew, and a lot of players knew, or a lot of community members knew, that that was the last time that a hypertapper would win CTWC. Yeah, yeah, and I was in the same boat for that. I think that was a great farewell tour for hyper-tapping. And I think it's still cool to see some players who still do tap, like Dylan, uh, Moya, Alex, and a few others. But that was the last time that uh, hyper-tapping had its day in the sun. We kind of knew at that point that it would be on the way out and that it could compete but not be at a high enough level to yeah. uh, consistently best rollers. It's it's similar what Des was to hypertapping. It could compete in, to a certain level, but after that, the hypertappers would dominate any Des players any day of the week. Yeah, and that entire narrative, because that was one of the first things I had learned about in the Game Scout video, was the sort of mythos of hypertapping and how it, at the time, seemed like this superhuman thing. Where, you know, you could tap 12, 13, or more times per second. 
to get pieces to the sides way faster than the devs had intended. And it's crazy to think back that we had considered that like the highest level of play. And so, yeah, seeing coming back in uh, 2020 and early 2021 and seeing how much hyper-tapping had taken over, I think I'd expected it. Uh, but it was still super interesting to see at that time, there were several DAS players who were still trying to perform insane upsets. And I think there are a few interesting ones. Uh, I think you remember, I think it was in WPL, Sharky had a crazy set, or maybe I think of someone else. But there were some really fun matches where you just felt like you had to root for the DAS player compared to the yeah. hyper because it'd be such an improbable thing to pull off. It's still, you still root for a DAS player compared to a hyper or a roller. Yeah. Uh, maybe less so hyper-tappers, because some of them can play well into the kill screen. But for DAS players, because it's all it's all stacking fundamentals and uh, just ability to adapt with the board. And there's just an art to that. It's hard to ignore. Yeah. And maybe it's the reason why DAS will survive. And in the end, hyper-tapping will slowly die and fade away. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We talked a little bit about you and the community. And that's... Um... And the community helped you to improve. Um, you got your first max out in um, or, uh, in June or May of, of 2021. So I had maxed out unrecorded in early April. That was, I had taken a bit of a break from the game and had gotten so many games in the low 900Ks, high 800Ks, and just could never get through to get a max out. And I believe it was April 3rd, April 4th. I had finally pushed through. But the issue was it was unrecorded. And so then I embarked on a second journey, which was to get it recorded. And that took over a month into uh, the middle of May. And after that, there was just a, a major relief. But then it was thinking, you know, what's next? How can I get ready for improving my play? The question I wanted to ask is you started playing uh, late November, early December. And you got your first max out now in uh, early April. You got your first record max out in May. That's a period of six months. And especially uh, for new players who haven't got any prior Tetris experience, a six months journey to a max out is pretty fast. Yeah. And I think part of that was at that time, of course, it was a uh, COVID period. And it was also coupled with me uh, having my senior year in high school. And so after I'd gotten all my college applications through, the second semester gave me a ton of time to just do whatever I wanted. And I set aside a lot of that time, which I'm very grateful of, to uh, push myself in NES Tetris. And that was definitely a big part of it. I mean, the, the time span doesn't fully represent the amount of hours that went into improving because I can get very fixated on things. And in that case, I was very fixated on improving and reaching for a max on NES Tetris. And so that's what it culminated in. Uh, how many times did you spend in VZ or how many times did you spend alone grinding for that max out? So honestly, I was still a bit hesitant to uh, fully involve myself into the community, pr uh, primarily because of just anxiety with being relatively new to the scene. And so a lot of it was spent uh, alone grinding in VC. I found playing with music definitely helped just get into a zone where you could focus on stacking fundamentals and improving. And so that's what a good bit of that time was uh, spent doing. But I will say, uh, thankfully, I had known someone who was also happened to be playing NES Tetris at the time uh, because we had a link to a different game called Marble Blast. We'd played 
competitively with speedrunning in that game. This is Storm and Norman, or you might know him as Draco. And so I think realizing he yeah. was in the community was super interesting. And so we had talked about how we were looking to improve. I think he maxed out around the same time or shortly after, but we had also been motivating each other and uh, sort of helping encourage each other to improve to that level of play. So that was very helpful. So how did you find out that you were both playing the same game? I forget what uh, led me to that realization. I think I might have just seen him in the server and been very, very surprised. And I think we were about the same level of play at that time. So I was just reaching out to be like, hey, I didn't know you played uh, NES Tetris. And so that was super cool. So you talked a little bit about Mar Marble Blast. That is uh, uh, a game that you that you also played. And we're going to talk about your YouTube channel uh, uh, a bit further ahead. But you uploaded a lot of Marble Blast content uh, on that. How did you get into Marble Blast? So that goes back all the way to, I think, 2008, 2009. Uh, so I was very into like marble maze toys. I was six at the time. So I loved building marble mazes. And I think just some random time I searched on YouTube uh, about marble related stuff and come across that game. And it was a very cartoony game. So it caught my eye immediately. And I had played it on my parents' computer for a few years, forgotten about it. And then also in 2018, I had returned to that community and realized that it had uh, kept going surprisingly because that's a nearly 20 year old game at this point yeah uh, and it had actually picked up on popularity much like nes tetris and a lot of that community was built around speedrunning uh some of the original levels or newer levels and at that time i just enjoyed it uh so much that i had dedicated a lot of time to understanding a lot of the facets of marble blast and that's when i first also got introduced to uh, video making and telling stories about those world records and so having a vast knowledge of a lot of what went into getting some of those runs and pulling off some incredible world records that had hundreds of hours dedicated to just one level uh, really interested me at the time and that's what sparked my interest in creating videos can you compare the games marble blast and nes tetris to each other um i think in some ways they're similar in terms of the timescales. You know, you had an initial heyday uh, shortly after their releases where there was a lot of big competition because it was the new thing. Of course, Tetris completely swept the world at its time in the late 80s and early 90s. Marble Blast, maybe not as much, but it was kind of seen as this small classic game is that people have a lot of nostalgic memories about playing them in the early to mid 2000s. I believe it was included on some Macs at the time. So a lot of people just got introduced to it uh, just at random. And uh, so having those communities that had an in initial surge, maybe dwindled a bit, and then people came back to the game a decade or two later and said, hey, this is still interesting. I want to see how far we can push this game. Uh, yeah. There's definitely some similarities in that. I think the dip the difference might just be that uh, for Marble Blast, it's about lowering your times on any given level. But now, of course, with Tetris and rolling, it's about getting as far as possible, lengthening out the game. So they're a bit different in that regard, but the same like underlying strategies of working to improve using unique uh, techniques and related things. Uh, it's pretty similar in that regard. I mean, I think that for in in the near future we'll see a normal eighteen start game that will crush the slow run world records. Yeah, I mean, I think Eric's game had to be close, right? 
Eric's game was, and you see, man, told me last month, uh, 38 minutes. Wow. And slow run was 47 minutes from the top of my head, 48 minutes. So we're getting close. Oh, very. So, I mean, imagine a game starting on level zero and then being drawn out to as far as Eric did. That'd be well over an hour. Oh my god, that's that's that is literally a marathon game. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, at that point, you come Tengen Tetris. You saw what the community was when you joined the community. You slowly grew into into the community and then got appreciated by the community after you started NES uh, related NES Tetris related videos uh, that you made. What do you think that the community is uh, will look like for the next coming six months to a year? So this has been, uh, at least the past few months after CTWC, has been a sort of test of trial and error in seeing what we can do to the game to make it still as compelling as it's been before. Uh, because, of course, rolling is definitely shaking things up in the sense that normal conventional Tetris strategies have changed a little bit. And of course, we saw that in CGWC 21 and 2022, where uh, players like Huff, Eric, and Fractal could just line out to ridiculous lengths to where no yeah. lead was safe. And I think there's still a bit of a mixed opinion about how people perceive that, because of course, it's a built-in part of the game. But now seeing these recent months that people have been uh, playing around with the double kill screen mechanic, I think it's something that definitely might uh, end up uh, taking part in the upcoming World Championships. Because I think it adds an extra dimension to overall strategy in that rollers still have a major advantage entirely, and especially rollers who are good enough to be going for Tetrises. But yeah. at the same time, it works to make both level 29, level 19, and level 18 all uh, still very important. Because pace still matters, Efficiency still matters, and in some cases you can build up a major lead into the kill screen, but of course now you still have an incentive to roll and keep playing to uh, get as far as possible. And seeing some of the games where there's been kill screen comebacks, like just last month with Gerald Freeman's uh, kill screen Tetris into level 39, I mean, it's it gets your heart racing. It's so cool to see the runway and the upcoming sort of brick wall, and I think that takes us back all the way to things like... Uh, Joseph versus Jonas in 2018. I mean, without the kill screen, that a game like yeah. that wouldn't have been as compelling and as exciting. Is the double kill screen addition to the game, is that a good thing in your opinion? So, I, I don't want to give away the full answer just yet because that's also something I'd like to be working on for an upcoming video. But in short, <laughs> I think so. I think it adds a great new dimension to the game that had already been in place before it. And I think it's... It's tough because some people claim that it's like uh, purists of NES Tetris claim that it's a bit of an artificial addition to the game. But at the same time, that hasn't stopped things like, for instance, uh, the score uncap, which, of course, is something that had to be added via Game Genies or other software. And so I think it's in the same nature of that, that uh, the addition of this will just be a, simply an extra dimension to NES Tetris, yeah. it's not taken away from anything else that's been there before it. So do you think there will be a time where the top players will conquer double kill screen? Or we need to go to even on a higher speed on level uh, 40 and beyond? I think that would take uh, either superhuman capabilities or Alex T to conquer. Um, 
I, I'd imagine that there will be a time where people can have some impressive plays on the double kill screen. Like, I don't think uh, level 40 has happened. I don't think 10 lines into double kill screen in, like, a normal game. Like, not just starting on double kill screen. I don't think that's happened just yet, but it definitely will. And yeah. I can imagine that people will get a bit further. I mean, something like level 41 could be in three possible, but I think it's way less sustainable. I mean, you get to a point where you need perfect rolls, perfect reaction time, a perfect sequence. So I think there'll still be fun stuff achieved on the double kill screen. And I mean, some of the things we've seen posted in CTM, like Miles, Alex T, uh, those just, I, I cannot imagine. It's like playing and reaching the, fir- uh, the the kill screen for the first time. It's just, you don't know how the pieces are going so fast or how to react. Yeah. To it's the same feeling all over again. But it's so amazing to see that the top players do grind on double kill screen because they know that it might make or break the match. Yeah, and also I'd imagine it helps to make level 29 and uh, level 19 feel slower. I think that was something yeah. I realized when I had first gotten a Game Genie, gotten a hold of a Game Genie and played on level 29 is that it helps with sort of keeping up with the earlier levels as well. And yeah, there will definitely be a time where points on the double kill screen matter. And the closest we've gotten is Gerald, but if I'm not sure if they're going to stick with the double kill screen in these upcoming months of CTM. I believe so. I'd imagine we'll see some crazy things happen, especially as people get more comfortable with playing on uh, with pace in mind for level 29 to 38. So. Yeah. Well, think about that. Now you have a th- a the third speed, the kill screen speed, uh, uh, added to the game. Uh, a lot of top players can play on kill screen, can play comfortable on on kill screen. I mean, max out are getting regular uh, starting on twenty nine. Yeah, that's been interesting to see how uh, it has just become just a regular occasion these days because that definitely wasn't the case very early on. I mean, in uh, when rolling first came about in. April and May of 2021, when it was first being picked up by not just Cheese, but people like Ruins, uh, those games were just a one-off thing. Like when Ruins posted about getting 250k on a 29 start, he was the second person to ever do it at that time. And it was just a crazy thing. But flash forward to nearly two years ahead, and I think there's a handful of players, maybe more than a dozen, that if you tell them, go get a quarter of a million on a 29 start, they could do it right now. First try. And so... It's that that's insane. That makes me think that level 18 is going to be uh, disbanded in a while to start on 18 and then just play on 19 for for 230, 240 lines and, uh, and go to kill screen for the last 100 lines. I think that's interesting because, as I'd mentioned, I think the addition of level 39 acts in a way that it makes all of the previous phases of the game more important and i think i've heard that as a big argument but i think just based on how fundamental it is i feel like level 18 puts all the further levels into context because if you consider pace and i'm not really sure what the the max extent is of double kill screen like i think if you go perfect from 18 to 29 you can get 1.5 million yeah i don't i imagine you could tack on maybe an extra million from 29 to 39 of course it wouldn't happen but uh, I think having that cap there makes it so that level 18 has more of a chance to stay in the game. Uh, without that and without uh, any cap for 
people to just be able to line out infinitely, it would have less of an importance. But I think, as we've mentioned, level 18 is still very integral to seeing how people stack and how they prepare for the further levels. And, I mean, no matter what, it is still an advantage to be stacking super well on the on the lower levels with lower speed. And so I think level 18 sells a chance. I'm not sure what other people think about it. But I think given the level 39 cap, it increases my confidence that it'll still at least be something that's interesting. Like like we've said, adjustments, uh, DAS play, uh, perfect stacking. It's still very impressive to watch in level 18. And how high can you score into transition? With transition with a 4, 450k, with its, which is a low transition score for top players, or will you transition with a 6... 20k uh, score transition i mean it, it will be it is interesting to see that you can uh go into 19 with a 200,000 points difference yeah and see how it goes from there Total Total yo this is steve deluca of Total radness Home of the Tetris World Tetris Order. World Order. Bringing order to a chaotic world. Ready to get rolling on the right side? Dominate the D-pad with a goofy foot controller. Visit TotalRadNES.com to score a controller modded by the inventor. Me! We've also got TWO gear. CTWC approved hardware and a ton of additional retrospective madness. Tune in to twitch.tv slash totalradness to watch Quaid and I take the BLV to 11. Also, don't miss the other homies at Aaron Jawsamoki for the Boom Tetris house parties with the Kitchen Dwellers. And at Classic Vomps for those classic Tetris nuts. Be the best and keep it TWO for, for, for life. We will return to the conversation in a minute, but first. Peace the Fantasy Podcast is available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Every episode will be available at full length over on the Peace the Fantasy Podcast YouTube channel. Subscribe, rate, and like our content to get us notified. There's also a Peace the Fantasy YouTube channel. On this channel, you'll see podcast highlights, mini documentaries, and other NES-related topic videos. You can follow us on the socials at Peace Dependency. Peace Dependency is active on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Join the Tetris Friendly's Discord server. Besides the fact that it's the place to discuss anything Peace Dependency, you can also participate in some lovely friendlies or put your ELO on the line in the various ELO battles. Go to tinyurl.com slash tetrisfriendlies to join the server. If you have a suggestion who we need to have on the next Peace Dependency podcast, let us know through the socials or our Discord channels. Now, let's go back to the conversation. You got your first max out in uh, April and your first recorded max out in May. That period between uh, these two max out, was it a frustrated one? Because you know you got your first one and then you, you needed your second one, but then on camera. 
Yeah, definitely. Because it's it's interesting. Uh, I didn't mention this, but a week after my first max out, I got a second one, and it was also <laughs> unrecorded. That was right after an online class, and I just picked up the game. And for a time, that was also my uh, best uh, post-transition phase. I think I had gone into level 19 with a 420,000 score and eked out uh, 580,000 into getting the max out. It was a very, very low max out. Yeah. And so doing that just casually and then struggling for like a month after because it creates a mental barrier. I think that's been a tough thing for me is having those mental barriers that uh, don't allow me to push further because I see the score in the top right and I see it climbing. And I mean, without that, if I had done the strategy, you know, to, to tape up the score in the top right and just play off a of feel, I might have gotten my recorded and unrecorded max outs earlier. Uh, and you can see it, I think, in my first recorded max out, I had like 1.1 pace into level 27 and then realizing that i was like oh shoot i need a stack well but counterintuitively that made me stack worse and <laughs> i i just barely got the max up but i mean that was definitely a weight off my shoulders once i got it on video i mean when you think about the game a game is game over oh yeah exactly and there are some players who are so good at uh risk management and nerve management and i will yeah. always be envious of that you got your first 1.1 in June of 2021. Was it the next goal that you had after you ha you had your max out? Or what was the goal you, you set for yourself after you got your max out? So part of it was just improving overall consistency because seeing in the games like the uh, recorded max out where I was on super good pace, um, I think I realized that I had the potential for much more. And seeing some of the good post-transition games made me realize that, you know, it's not too far-fetched that I could significantly improve my PB in a short period of time. And there's a lot of motivation at the time. I'd seen some players improve at crazy levels. One instance is uh, Sidnev, who had gone from uh, their first max in late 2020 to getting like a 1.3 and a 19 start in June. And so that made me realize, you know, it might not be too far off that I can improve my PB even more. And so the motivation kept going. And that stretch in June, I had some pretty crazy games. One of the ones that I'm still super bummed about is an unrecorded game in later June where I had gotten a max into early 25. Never even maxed on 26 at that point, I don't think. But yeah. the nerves kicked in and I uh, ended up getting my PB with like a 1.15. But it was games like that that made me realize that I just needed to have uh, a lot of things come together, but if I could pull it off, I could get something well above what I would be expecting. So you got your 1.1, 1 .1, uh, and what was the next goal? Uh, I had been trying to get a 19 max for so long at that point, and so I'd grinded a, a lot of 19 during that time, which had definitely helped for 18 starts, but I never managed to get it. And so I think it was either stuck between just trying to get the 19 max or the 1.2, and as you might know, uh, those took a while. Both of those individual goals, I think, took until a year later. So I was stuck in that sort of limbo phase. But at the same time, I'd also been toying around with rolling. And so whenever I'd felt demotivated for tapping, I think I had started to put a bit more energy into rolling. Uh, the only issue was I was very, very bad at it for a long time. <laughs> I have an old spreadsheet where I kept track of some of my PBs, and I don't think I had cracked like 200,000 on a, on a 19 start for like two, three months of rolling, like off and on pretty consistent grinding. And so if I wasn't tapping and uh, messing up 1.2 pace games, I was trying to get better at rolling and failing a little bit. 
But is that frustrating, those two months where you consistently practice rolling and you won't get a score above 200k? Yeah, and I think some people were definitely uh, better at picking it up so much earlier. Uh, but for others where it's whole new muscle memory, you know, you haven't had to think about uh, some of the nuances of rolling where, you know, for a three or four tap, you have to have precisely that many fingers strike the controller uh, yeah. rather than something like tapping where it's so much easier to get into muscle memory. Uh, it makes it harder. It makes it harder when you can only see the improvement in short bursts. But every time you'd get a super crazy roll or every time you'd have some crazy move or down stack that wouldn't have been possible otherwise, that was like further pushing me to rolling is that, you know, 90% of the time it was frustrating, but the other 10%, it was crazy. It was realizing, wow, I didn't even think you could do that. So what's your current PB now with rolling then? Uh, that would be a 1.32, I believe. I have a couple unrecorded 1.3 games. Uh, I can check real quick, actually. That might be useful. Is that also the PB that you claim? Because according to the Tetris bot, you have a 1.2. Yes. Or it's done a different name. Uh, no, that would be so. I uh, that one point two is a recorded game that was in VC, but I have a couple one point threes that I didn't record. Uh, the way I can explain that away is that I, at least since I picked up YouTube, I haven't been having as big of grind sessions, and so unfortunately that has resulted in me just being bad at recording my individual <laughs> games. And it's, I mean, it's also it's the same thing as what happened with my, my Max out is that now it is all entirely nerves behind it is whenever I get on pace, it's like, Oh shoot. I worry about messing this up. And so, okay, real quick, I can pull it up. So my current PB is one second. Uh, D 17, I believe as per this, as per my oh, yeah. max out spreadsheet one. Yes. And so I have a couple of those, but it's, it's been another tough mental barrier because 1.3 almost always requires either insane pace or kill screen play. And unfortunately with rolling, when you're on crazy pace, you roll much worse. Like I I feel for people who, uh, in some of the competitions like CWC and CTM, just all of a sudden look to fall off in the rolling play. But that's because if you're nervous with rolling, it just makes every single move so much more risky because you know, you worry about missing a five tap to the left, but then you miss the five tap because you're worried about it. So it's oh, like yeah. a, a feedback loop, and it, it's awful. Yeah. Like I said, if you think about the game, the game is game over. Entirely, yeah. Yeah. I tried rolling for a month, uh, a month and a half. I just can't find a grip that's that I find comfortable. I can't find uh, the right uh, pressure. Uh, on the buttons, I can find the right pressure to put on the back of the controller. It's frustrated. Uh, it's frustrating to to pick up that style. Uh, do you roll left-handed or right-handed? I roll. Le- I roll right-handed. Left hand is uh, controlling the AB and left right. Okay. Uh, so I was. I, I think I realized early on that I could only really roll left-handed. I had tap left-handed. I'm also. I happen to be left-handed, so that just felt natural for me. Uh, right-handed rolling definitely has the advantage of having a bit more surface area, where you know if you sort of flip the controller upside down, you have more of a place to anchor your fingers. And that's still an issue that I come across with rolling. It's just 
it feels a bit finicky where if you have slight changes in pressure or, you know, your anchor fingers slightly slide off the controller, everything falls apart. Yeah. And so I guess my piece of advice to you and also others who struggle with rolling, it just feels like something that you have to pay attention to the small changes and that over a great period of time, you will see that turn into very big improvements in gameplay. And so for me, what it helped was I had kept track of a little document of just PBs, improvements in how I was rolling, and also just watching how other people roll. Uh, Doge yeah. was a great help because he was one of the first left-handed rollers. And so I had sort of adapted to uh, his grip and his stance. And so it was very, very frustrating at first. I would not want to repeat that uh, <laughs> first month of grinding in April and May of 2021. But looking back at it, I feel like that was very useful in having me roll had to be frustrating to start but uh it helped in the long term what is the grip that you use for rolling then so i uh it's anchored with the right hand and i put a lot of pressure on just like two or three fingers i could never get into rotating with uh just one finger on both buttons that was something i couldn't do for muscle memory so i had to make some sacrifices and uh use two fingers to rotate, which I do not recommend, because that means I have less anchor power on the controller. Uh, but then it's something close to what Ruins does, where the controller is basically vertical on the side of the leg. Yeah. And uh, I've had I've had off and on success with that. I initially started doing it with like a very flat grip where it was just laying on top of my leg. Uh, but I think that's had more success with being more consistent and having better taps. And I'm still not yeah. all that good at five taps. There's some crazy players like Alex T. You can do them like they're nothing. But it's definitely better than I was when I was first experimenting with those grips. Oh yeah, I mean, it is for for an outsider who only watches CTWC, and I think for um, the people who watch CTWC 2022, I think nearly all all the top players were were rolling. It is so weird to see. Everyone has a controller on or on their lap or on their feet or whatever the grip is and uh, tickling the back of the controller. You see so yeah. much, so so many YouTube comments that are like, what is this? And how is it legal? Yeah, I've gotten several comments. I mean, even just recently is like, are there buttons on the other side of the controller? And honestly, I don't blame them because it's very unconventional. And people yeah. worry about, you know, the, the legality of it. They see things like gloves and gloved rolling. Uh, but I think it's just, I mean, it is pure creative genius to think that something like that could be possible. I could look at a NES controller for ages and not come up with that. And so in some ways, you just have to appreciate what went into developing that uh, as confusing as, as it is. And of course, Scout, me and others have issues with uh, trying to explain it in a succinct way because, of course, it, it warrants explaining. It's such an unconventional thing, but if you're a regular yeah. to any of those channels, you'll hear the same thing over and over again in each new video explaining it. Uh, but yeah, now I understand those comments because it is very unconventional, but once you get to appreciate it, it is something to behold, honestly. I think that these viewers need to watch the death tournaments first and then slowly get involved into the community, and then they are ready for the lore of rolling. Yeah, it's probably overwhelming to just jump in and see all these crazy stunts pulled on the kill screen with this completely wacky playstyle. And so I think that's also probably why I was so lucky to jo have joined the community early on when I could play a good bit with tapping and then sort of 
get into the feel of rolling. But I also think it's a good thing that the best players or the top players are using a style that uh, it's not conventional. Because if I if I watch a world championship from from a game, um, it is I want to see something that I that I know that I can't do, so that I know that they are really the best players of that game. If I see someone holding the uh, a controller the normal way, like for a desk player, for example, in my mind. If I grind enough, I can do that too. But if I see someone rolling, I know they've practiced a lot. They are truly the best players in that game, and they they are truly dedicated to playing that game. Yeah, yeah. And I think the cool thing about it is that it combines both mechanical skill, like something that you can just visually see, that a lot of work goes into practicing the muscle memory of that, and then, of course, the skill of actually playing the game and having yeah. super proficient stacking. And so that's definitely a great combination that you could see i do worry that it might turn people away from uh like having sort of like a higher barrier to entry but at the same time i i've still seen some people who have just recently picked up the game uh from rolling off the bat like i think wallbant is an, an example of someone who joined in like right after scout's video about introducing rolling and then had insane success uh yeah. right away so I don't think it's turning too many people away, thankfully. If it turns people away, luckily Des is during a is 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 on a revive tour. I don't know what happened with Des, but many pronounced Des dead for years, and then last year, uh, Classic Dead was Des, a tournament hosted by Scamper Nine, got uh, got major success. Uh, we had the World Cup of Des in in Germany last year, so Des is really really doing a comeback uh, comeback tour lately. Yeah, it's had a major resurgence. And unfortunately, I have still yet to max out with Das. My PB is about 870,000. But even just getting into the game initially, and even for people who don't really know much about Tetris at all, you can still appreciate the art of what goes into Das because it looks like a playstyle that, I mean, obviously it has many, many limitations, but seeing people work around it and basically play the game as entirely intended by... The developers but still to uh, achieve unprecedented results like a 1.3 uh from an 18 start that's just insane yeah i mean i was gonna say uh in my almost uh two and a half years of playing i still cannot imagine how long it would take to challenge those scores with das even if i just ditched everything and started playing das tomorrow i mean it's it takes an entirely unique skill set and it's it's an entirely unique game that if you play with that compared to Harp Zapper or with Rolling, it requires just an entirely unique skill set. And that, yeah, like you said, it's like playing uh, its own uh, version of Tetris. And so it is very cool to see Das go by the wayside, but there's just so much time that's been invested to it. And so many incredible players that happen to be good with, I mean, hyper tapping, rolling Das. I mean, you think of people like Pixelandy who are insane at all three. So it's yeah. getting its, its well deserved victory lap. So I wanted to talk about your competition career, but there are only two matches that you competed in on one event. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I can preface uh, and go a bit before that in that I have technically played in three events, but have only uh, gotten to such, such a level where I played in recorded matches in one of those, being CTWC. But uh, before that, this was in July of 2021, I took part in the South Carolina qualifier. Uh, and so that was very interesting because I think I'd still been a bit 
shy of fully entering the community and trying to see what I could do in tournaments. I had still been doubting my play a little bit. But at that time, I was uh, visiting my college, and it was very close by. And so I just realized, you know, I could just uh, go down and uh, see how I could do in this thing. Uh, yeah. But that was very unfortunate because I had still been stricken with nerves. I, I feel bad for uh, how I presented myself at the tournament because I was just uh, so nervous that I, I don't think I talked to many people, didn't give myself a proper introduction. And in the end, I qualified just one seed out of the tournament. Mm. And uh, my, my one match where I should have done it, I was on level 25 with what was like a 50k or 100k off and just had an awful misdrop. And you could just see it in my face, realizing that that was my last chance. But the, yeah. the silver lining was that that had been a sort of breakthrough moment in me understanding how I would perform in comp. And then that uh, led us to the world championship shortly after. Qualified for CTWC 2021, you qualified for the gold bracket. And to me, CTWC 2021 was the strongest field ever for CTWC, mainly because it was second year of the pandemic era. Uh, we saw what could happen during CTWC 2020 and people still had time and normal life slowly returned in 2021, but was not fully back for for the growth that the scene had between 2020 and 2021. So I'm honestly surprised that you qualified uh, for CTWC 2021 with four max outs and, an, uh, and a high kicker. Yeah, and I think I had surprised myself because in the qualifiers, uh, the, the mock qualifiers that I'd done before it, I think my best had been one max out. And at that point, I had never gotten back-to-back -back max outs. But I think I had just broken new ground in sort of getting rid of my nerves. I think I'd sort of prepared it. Uh, so this was at the very start of the tournament when I was doing the or the, the qualifier, when I was doing the tech uh, tech check. And I had made an offhand joke where it was, uh, he was, he was like checking over the, I forget who, checking over my uh, cartridge and all those things. And I had said, you know, if this was the, the qualifier, I'd be killing it. And I got a little chuckle out of him uh, and for this really awful joke. But for whatever reason, that pre-prepared thing uh, lifted the weights off of me. And very early on, I'd gotten a 900K, another 900K, and then like four max outs in 40 minutes. And so I completely surpassed any expectations that I had. Maybe it helped that I was on CT2 rather than Classic Tetris 1. So I didn't have as many eyes on me. But uh, that was a major surprise to me and probably some other people as well. I was, when I qualified, I was on CT1 because I did the podcast for a year. So I was a little bit known, but my PB then was 500k. And I saw a glimpse of chat and I was saying, what the frick is Sermis doing on CT1? I mean, you you had the presence. You had the presence to do that. Even if the, the play wasn't CT1 caliber, it's still, you made yourself known. There is indeed a difference because I qualified with Poyo and Nomori and they were both on CT2 when we qualified together. And I was like, I don't want to be on CT1. I want to be on CT2 because you know, Classic Optus 1 has more views. So more people are watching you. So you know, they are judging you. And the nerves started to show up when, when I realized I was on CT1. Yeah. And I, again, like you said, it's if you, if you realize that, I mean, at that moment, it, everything goes downhill because then you realize, you know, I have so many eyes on me. And so for me, it, it helped, even though there were a good bit of people on CT2, 
uh, just letting myself get into that mindset. So, I mean, I can imagine that it was very difficult for a lot of people. When in the week did you qualify? Early uh, or late in the week? I think I qualified very late. Uh, it might have been the Friday or Saturday of that very last weekend. I wanted to give myself just a little bit of uh, leeway that I wasn't going to be one of the last people to qualify, but that I could sort of understand what the bracket picture was and what to shoot for. And so that time, uh, you'd seen people, you know, like Peps with his insane back-to-back max outs, but realizing that, I mean, two max outs wasn't enough to guarantee a spot in the gold bracket. And so yeah. that was an extra push for me to just leave it all out there and see if I could uh, surpass my expectations. And I mean, somehow it worked out. So you qualified seed number 38. You were, got placed in uh, a bracket with Aaron, Eric Asiax, Tristop, Ian, Maus, uh, Harry McCrack, and Kofi. And you played your first match against uh, against Ian. But you never played a match in, in any Estetra. So were you nervous for your very first game? Uh, yeah, I guess you could say that just a little bit. Um, so this was uh, very early on. I mean... The qualifier was one thing, because I was definitely nervous during that, but anticipating the World Championship, and especially considering it was my tournament debut, I think I had reached out to uh, Dog early on, uh, either wishing him luck, or I think he might have wished me luck, and you know, asking what to expect. So at that time, I think he had said, you know, if this is your first match, you know, good luck. I was super nervous in my first match, and I think his wasn't even in that major of an event. So that made me realize, you know, oh shoot. Uh, I've got to worry about something. And so, <laughs> unfortunately, the nerves sort of play into themselves. I have pretty bad performance anxiety. But I think at that point, I just wanted to see how I could do. At that yeah. point, I wasn't. I, my goal had already been achieved. I'd already made it into the tournament at a seed much better than I had expected. And so I just wanted to see if I could take a game or two off of somebody. I wasn't really shooting for much more than that. Yeah. So you took two games of Ian. You ended up losing in a decider match. But why didn't you play uh, any uh, competition prior to CTWC? So again, I think that uh, that works into the, the nerves part of it, uh, considering that I had already worried about how I would fare in competition. And my biggest leap towards that was the South Carolina qualifier, which I had unfortunately not gotten into. But at that time, I was still a bit hesitant to jump into it. I think that's also the reason that it's been tough to return to competition since. Because yeah. I've sort of enjoyed seeing people who are just incredibly, uh, have incredible composure in their competition play, you know, people who are much better than I am. But, I mean, I don't think I've completely dismissed the idea of getting back into competition. And, I mean, it's still something that I have never done is uh, make it out to the in-person world championships, so I think it would be a good idea to try to get back into at least some form of competition before that. Is it, some, is it something that you plan to to do? Go to CTWC 2023? Uh, yeah, definitely. So I was very bummed about missing CTWC 2022 uh, because I had a couple of complete uh, obligations at that time, and it was just really unfortunate timing, all things considered. But having this extra planning uh, considering the date's pretty fixed and locked in, uh, I think that's a that's a goal for this year is to make it out there, and I mean qualifying and making it. Uh, those are their own discussions because we don't know how insane this uh, the scene might be by then. 
but before that, I would definitely like to get involved in at least some more online competition. Yeah, because you haven't played any competition since CTWC 2021. So I had uh, qualified for the WPL uh, Classic Tetris Open, but I had only been in a best of one match. So this wasn't recorded as an official oh, yeah. uh, competition. I'd played against, uh, oh gosh, who was it? I don't remember who, but I had again gotten very nervous and I think topped out at like level 25. So it wasn't my best showing, but I think if there's any way for me to mitigate those nerves, it's definitely to just be more exposed to competition and just uh, get matches in and just have such consistency in that that the nerves sort of go away a bit. When it becomes more routine, when I'm playing not just to try to get the pressure off of myself, but also just to enjoy it, I think that's what made the World Championships so uh, enticing to play in back in 2021. Because it wasn't just uh, trying to win the whole thing. I knew I had basically no chance at that time. It was also just to make the experience something that was memorable. So when did you decide that you wanted to uh, participate in CTWC 2021? Uh, I think that was around when I got my first max out. I definitely had ambitions to see how I could, uh, how close I could get after the 2020 World Championships uh, finals, the top eight. Uh, yeah. But I saw it as increasingly feasible as soon as I'd gotten my first max out because I'd assumed that if things continued, I could get to that level. And of course, one max out wouldn't have done it. Uh, but I that that pushed me to continue to improve. You played your matches in a parody platypus onesie. Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, that was also another thing to try to take the nerves off of me a bit. And I think it worked in a way because it, again, made the tournament more that I wasn't trying to make a fool of myself, but I was trying to find a way to uh, have it all be in good fun. I mean, one way to get attention to yourself is wearing a Beverly Platypus onesie. Yeah, I mean, I hope it distracted a bit or took away a bit from some of my not-so-good play, especially in that second <laughs> match versus uh, Kofi. But uh, yeah, I, I still don't know if it was successful or unsuccessful. I mean, it, it created uh, one big character that was amazing to see during CTWC. Yeah, and... I if there was an award for best dressed, I think I might have been up there. But oh yeah, one hundred percent. Is 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 Perry going to make his return to online competition whenever you play online uh, online competition? Uh possibly. I think it depends on where I am because uh, currently I'm actually not at college. I am taking a semester off. But when I played at that time, it was super hot in my dorm, and so that combination <laughs> with the Perry the platypus onesie and being oh, nervous. Man. Wasn't lovely. Wasn't great. Uh, I think I probably <laughs> not go for doing it in in-person uh, competition. Although a few people have uh, suggested that I, if I go to CTWC, I should totally wear it. That's still up in yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, yes. So we'll see. Yeah. No, you should. It's now live on the air. You should. <laughs> oh, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. Um. So what are the competitions that you want to play if, you, if you're going to play online? So CTM, definitely. I had a bit more motivation. This was after the uh, a video I did about Fractal in CTM. I think I made an announcement saying that I was going to qualify or attempt to qualify, but then I 
chickened out of the last moment, and I'm still a bit bummed at myself for doing that because part of it is being nervous, and part of it is yeah. that I haven't had as much time to focus on improving in Tetris. In fact, I think a lot of my improvement has come from just random sessions where I am completely procrastinating from editing videos. And so it's it's sort of a dynamic where the less work I get done, the better I get at Tetris. <laughs> and the more work I do, the worse I get at Tetris. Uh, but I think I've gotten to a level where I think it would be fun to see how I could do in some tournaments. Uh, that and Gauntlet. I'm, I'm not sure how active Gauntlet has been, but that was one of the earlier tournaments I had watched, and I love that team's format. Big fan of that. Yeah, Gauntlet is still using team's format. Yeah, it's very unique in uh, the way that it works, and I think that, yeah, that was one of the first things I had watched, and knowing a few people who have participated in it, like Ramations, uh, Rhubarb, and a few others, uh, I... It would be fun. I'm not sure how available it would be to just hop on a team or something, but uh, definitely once I've gotten a bit more competition experience under my belt. And CTL? Playing against similar skilled players? Yeah, that would be fun. I think once I've realized my potential in competition, because of course, it's at least for me, it's harder to reach the potential I can achieve in when just going for uh, solo uh, gameplay uh, so once I've sort of understood my competitive capabilities, yeah, I think it'd be a fun thing to jump into. You have a YouTube channel named uh, Acobalt. You also have a YouTube channel named Mcobalt, but that's a short channel, mainly used for Minecraft shorts. Mm -hmm. And for Acobalt, you started out uh, posting Marble Blast videos. Uh, how did you learn uh, the editing style and how did you learn writing scripts and all that? So a lot of the editing was just from uh, me goofing around in Minecraft many years back, and I never really had much ambition to create anything other than just like personal, you know, Minecraft uh, fighting montages, basically. But I had gotten interested in the idea of making videos covering world records uh, based off on some of the summoning salt videos I'd seen back in like 2019, and realizing, you know, I don't think anyone has as much interest as I do or others do in Marble Blast enough to make videos, but it wouldn't be until 2021 that I seriously consider doing it. And part of that was because I had just moved into college. This was around August 2021. And I had a bit of extra time on my hands. I was still a bit anxious from the whole move-in process and all these new experiences. So I found a bit more uh, comfort and consistency in just seeing what I could do with that format. And so... All of the editing and story writing was self-taught. And if you go back to my channel, uh, there definitely weren't the best production quality videos, but I think that was a very important step to uh, understanding the entire process and how to tell a, an actual like legitimate story. Yeah. And you uploaded a lot of Marble Blast videos, and then one day you decided to delete a lot of Marble Blast videos. <laughs> what was that? So those were just personal speedrun videos. Uh, a lot of them were either specific levels or compilations of similar levels. And so at that point, I had done that because I wanted to focus more on the storytelling, sort of take myself out of the main picture. But also something very interesting in uh, the YouTube algorithm. So what Marble Blast does sort of uniquely is for whatever reason, it's the same way that I got into Marble Blast when I was six years old. Uh, when people search up, you know, Marble toy videos, 
uh, Marble Blast comes up. And so, for whatever reason, some Marble Blast videos get inexplicably super popular. Just random yeah. Marble Blast gameplay. And so one of my Marble Blast videos from 2018 all of a sudden just got uh, like 200,000, 300,000, 400,000 views a few months after. And then it shot up all the way to 1 million. And this was a bad video, mind you. It was just me playing around with Marble Blast levels. It was a speed run, but it was like 15 yeah. minutes behind the world record. Uh, and so... Unfortunately, that meant that a lot of people who had joined the channel and subscribed to the channel weren't returning for other videos, even if their production quality was higher, because these are people who accidentally stumbled upon it, uh, might accidentally hit subscribe or comment or like the video. And so I sort of had to cut my losses and uh, start anew, basically. But uh, yeah. all those videos still exist. They're just unlisted. So you were popular on YouTube Kids. Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say that. It's funny that you say that because I have a daughter. She's now three and a half years old and she's not watching uh, Marble Blast or Marble videos, but she's watching YouTube Kids because we find that more appropriate for her than normal YouTube. But she's watching Mario Kart, uh, Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games, uh, uh, a Mario Kart, and she's not watching the gameplay, but she's watching a video where they uh, go to the select screen of the characters and then <laughs> hit A so Mario makes his noise and then go back to B to the uh, character select menu and go to the next character and so on and so on. So I have a feeling that it's the same type of video that you had that she's watching and she's three and a half and the kids, you, your demographic was like six-year-olds watching Marble Blast videos so they were finally quiet for, for, yeah. for their parents. Yeah, and I guess oh, the interesting thing is that, of course, like when I was making the, the videos, the speedrun compilations and whatnot, a lot of that was for the community itself, the competitive community. And, of course, it'd be viewed by them, and that was a fun thing because there are a lot of really good compilations of super high-level Marble Blast gameplay. I entirely recommend that. Uh, and then it just had this random surge in views from completely unrelated populations of uh, demographics of people. And I guess the one silver lining is that if it was a same a similar thing to where, you know, I'd played Marble Blast as a kid when I was six years old, forgotten about it for a decade, and then come uh, came back to it, maybe the same thing will happen. Maybe 10 years down the line, people will be joining the, the Marble Blast server and saying, you know, I, I watched these random Marble Blast videos 10 years ago, and just it, it's been forgotten in my memory until now so yeah never know what made you expand from marble blast videos only to tetris videos so i think all of that uh specifically boils down to the uh world record the jounce 1.6 pro record because i had been off and on considering uh entering the uh scene of tetris videos i just could not figure out what to do or what would make sense because of course that was a time when Scout dominated the uh, sort of Tetris storytelling landscape. He again had incredible high quality videos. So I had worried about, you know, taking away from that because I had just started my channel. I was still finding my style. Yeah. Uh, but the Jounce uh, slash Hydrant Dude World Record was a perfect storm. So I can sort of retell the, the story of that. So that was a, a day where I had been watching CTM. I was procrastinating from a test. Uh, by watching CTM, and that world record was still, uh, at that time, it was such a turning point in how I had been viewing NES Tetris, because 
the entire thing leading up to that game and what happened in the 1.6 was just crazy because that was still yeah. when pace mattered a bit. You know, it was still seeing if a tapper could get 1.4. I think Cheese had, he was still holding on to the world record, but pace still was an exciting thing to watch. And so, uh, Jounce slash Hydrant, he had maxed out in level 24, was continuing at this insane pace. And then all of a sudden, uh, Vandy went silent. And then Hydrant just went absolutely crazy on the kill screen. And I was just stuck with this blank stare at the screen, watching him completely destroy the world record. Uh, watch the rollover and seeing, you know, Vandy couldn't contain his excitement with that. And I don't blame him because that was such an insane achievement. It's very first rollover. <laughs> yeah. And after a 1.5 skip and after one of the greatest uh, 29 scores into 29 scores, it was absurd. And so I hadn't thought much of it at that exact time. I think after that, I shut my computer and actually done some productive study. But <laughs> the morning after, I just remember sitting in class and just having this perfect uh, video narrative and story. And I think that title came to mind, the title that's on the video still, uh, how a mysterious player uh, destroyed NES Tetris or broke NES Tetris. And there's something crazy about surges of motivation in that regard, because I never drafted up a script for Tetris. And by like noon uh, that day, like two hours later, I had drafted like multiple pages and had recorded like two minutes of the video and then uh based on memory that was when uh jounce was revealed to actually be hydrant dude and so yeah, i had it was shortly after indeed so i had written and uh developed like five minutes of the video based on jounce being jounce and not jounce being a hydrant <laughs> and so I started to sit back at a moment and be like, wait, do I have to restart this? How can I make this work? And all of a sudden, you know, the wheel stopped turning because all this motivation had just grinded to a halt. And then I kind of just stuck with it. I made it so that it was a bit of a, a turning point, a bit of a twist in between the middle of the video where yeah. Jazz happened to be hydrant. And I think that was very lucky on my part uh, to have that be so fortunate of a, a twist in the story. But that was such an exciting week to sort of enter the... Uh, video making scene and to have this story that I was super excited to talk about because I had witnessed it firsthand and that was how we entered the NES Tetris scene for making videos. But it was also very quick after when Hydrant Dude got to 1.6, it was very quick that a video got made about it because no offense to 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 Game Scout, but sometimes it takes months before a topic is covered for for example and it was the first time that within a week or within two weeks, we had a video about a world record which had a little bit of controversy around it. And you explained it perfectly in that, in that video. So, I mean, not to disparage Scout, honestly, I feel like having to do that required cutting at least a few corners. Firstly, it was just an insane surge of motivation. And so internally, I was thinking, you know, if I let this go on for a week or something, I might become uh unsure in the video you know it would i be the best to cover it or would scout or someone else be the best to cover it and yeah. i think at that point there were a couple people already working on things is that scout wanted to do i think abasoft might have wanted to do a video covering it i think i remember uh talk about that and so there was a bit of a time incentive for me because i'd worried about becoming uh sort of less confident about how the video would be presented or how i 
how confident I was in uh, producing a high quality video. So that definitely yeah. added to it because it was nonstop from like Thursday to Sunday of uh, publishing that video. It's very hard to replicate that consistently. So what is normally then the process you have for making a video? Do you have a list of topics that you eventually want to cover in for any aesthetic related videos? Uh, yeah, so I have a notepad that just I jot down ideas. This is like the, the notepad app on my phone. And then for topics I'm very serious about continuing, I have a Discord server where it's basically just all my thoughts laid out. And so I have uh, channels where I can uh, link things. I have links to documents, uh, ideas, uh, brainstorming. And uh, that's something I did only in 2022. So uh, after like four or five videos, but I've had uh, some very, uh, I'm very grateful for the help I've had with uh, producing those videos. Uh, several people, uh, Rhubarb, Foiled Thrice, uh, and a few others have been very helpful with that process of brainstorming, uh, testing ideas, and also with scripts, having to help look over scripts. Without, without them, I could not have produced the videos in the manner that I did. But very early on, it was more of just a personal uh, project. It was just me developing the videos. When you start working on a script, is it a, a basic script that covers the like major parts of, of a topic and then you go into detail or do you do research first? Uh, it's a bit of a mix of both is that sometimes it'll just be uh, trialing things that uh, sort of make sense. I tried to put more emphasis into, you know, like the starting portions of the video of jumping into the topic in a way that is more easily approachable. And I think I've definitely been better at doing that since the start. Uh, and so that, that part probably takes the longest of like getting the ball rolling because there is a lot more uncertainty in how I can cover a topic, how I can start strongly and like sort of uh, have the story be as engaging as it truly is. That's definitely a difficult part. But once I get into the video, it becomes a whole lot easier. So you have your script in the end. Uh, like you said, you have multiple people who look with you um, uh, on that script. They change it a bit. You, redraw, uh, you rewrite the script, for, for example. And then you start editing. Is it always the same style that you want to use between all the videos? Or do you want to try something new for every new video? A lot of it ends up being uh, decently similar, similar, but uh, a couple of times I do try to add a few nuances. Typically, it's just visuals, and of course, Scout has been incredible at that recently with his uh, stats visualizing. But that was amazing. Yeah, it was it was fantastic. But for instance, uh, a little bit later down the line with the video about Fractal's tournament run in CTM, I really liked making the focal point this uh, this chart of the entire tournament bracket focusing on the individual matchups, working my way upwards. And a creator that I and many others draw a lot of inspiration from is uh, John Boyce. I'm not sure if you've heard of him, but he does sports content. But with this yeah. very engaging visual style to it is that, of course, you have the actual uh, event itself or related topics, but then you can back it up with stats, visuals, graphics, all these things. And it's still it's always a work in progress, but Seeing those things uh, work out in the editor is fantastic. What kind of things do you use for research? Uh, I mean, typically it's just compiling a uh, decently sized uh, 
list of uh, related topics, videos, uh, even articles, like with uh, the video about the speedruns, the uh, task speedruns of getting to a max out. There was a very good, I believe it was uh, the task videos website, where I just had a list of uh, uh, videos directly ahead of me. But typically it goes through things like CTM, which of course is very fantastic for back reading and getting information. Yeah. Um, that's where a couple of people have also been a big help is like, for instance, uh, Remainings has an encyclopedic knowledge of a lot of past events and stats, Nerd the Box as well. And so whenever I just cannot put my finger on finding a specific game where something happened or match history or stats, they have been very helpful with that. Uh, and then for things that have also taken more extensive research, uh, sometimes it requires just reaching out to somebody and uh, having them explain the topic to me. For instance, with uh, the Fractal Bugged Colors video, Kuryava was fantastic at helping explain to me specifically how the bug colors uh, take place, what goes into yeah. color palettes, and then what makes them uh, go away entirely. And then just working single-handedly with people like Fractal was also a great help with that because it was a video, of course, covering his achievement. And so it's been a, a balancing act of finding things myself and also having people help out. And again, without that, I wouldn't be able to make these videos whatsoever. So I appreciate it a lot. But what is your target audience for these kind of videos? Is it, is it, uh, is it the community or do you want to reach people from outside the community and explain uh, what is going on in the Tetris scene? I think it ends up being entirely a mix of both. Uh, both. So that was how I started with Marble Blast videos was it was something that I could find a way to make videos and cover topics that aren't simplistic enough to not appeal to people who, you know, have been in the scene for years and know every single facet of the game, but also be compelling enough for people who are entirely new to the game to also be able to uh, pick it up and understand the video. And... I think there's a there's a comment that resonates with me a lot where it's you know the whole I've never watched or played Tetris but I ended up uh, sitting through this entire video and that's a very hard balance to strike is being both uh, complex enough but also compelling and interesting enough and approachable and I yeah. think people like Scout do that perfectly well and so that ends up being a, a similar approach for me. So what? How do you try to approach that then? I think it's specifically the explanatory sections. It's finding a way to still have, uh, to, to be able to go into the individual facets of something. For instance, rolling. I think there's many ways to approach topics and rolling is one of them to where, I mean, sometimes you will get comments that still don't understand how rolling works. And that's when you realize, you know, I probably haven't done the best at explaining how that works. Yeah. And so then, uh, retreading and going back into how to cover the topics. I think visuals have helped with that. Uh, for instance, with the rolling, it's good to have like a side-by-side -side comparison with that and things like hypertapping and death and just pointing out the nuances and issues. I think that's something I've improved at since I started picking up YouTube. And it's still not something I perfected, but it's very difficult. I think you always learn from each and every video. Yeah, entirely. So which video are you most proud of that you made? I think that would have to be the Fractal Bugged Colors video. Uh, 
partly because I think that's the longest I have spent off and on on a project. Unfortunately, I get very fixated on one individual project at a time. That's also the reason that I haven't really been the best at returning to Tetris content because I have this side project with Minecraft stuff. But for that video, that was probably the uh, one instance where that wasn't the case. So in December of 2021, Fractal had been very, very close to getting to bug colors. And so my initial plan was to make a video that was sort of like a preface to that, basically explaining the entire, like what was going to go into that and then ending the video with a link to basically say, go watch Fractal achieve this here. And then I would have maybe made a video following it up and explaining the achievement in greater detail. Yeah. But then I sort of strayed away from that topic. I didn't know if I would be able to make it in a timely manner. You know, if I publish a video, maybe Fractal had already achieved the record and I had other topics I wanted to cover. And so that was put off a bit until February, where Fractal had finally achieved bug colors after this incredibly long grind. And it was super well-deserved, but I was very worried because it was a monumental topic to cover. Like I had said, there were so many facets that went into, I mean, things like just the colors glitching on in the first place, things I didn't have expertise on. So I was a bit hesitant. And in fact, I had written a good bit of a script in March and then... I wasn't as big of a fan with it, so I had scrapped it and basically started from new. And yeah. then the main uh, video project happened in about a week and a half span from reaching out to Kuryava to publishing the video. And I remember I had come down with a sickness at the end of that. And so I had this motivation to just push through the project, but I was also feeling just kind of awful. Oh, no. And... At that time, I mean, I'd been so far into the video that the motivation kind of just pushed me through, and I was very excited to release that and try to explain the story. And I think still to this day, I haven't ha done a better job at explaining a journey or a grind. And of course, for Fractal, I'm very glad that the video gained traction because, I mean, he put so much time into it, more time than I ever put into uh, making the video he put into grinding for that achievement. And so I do hope it helped... Uh, direct some traffic over to him and i'm very yeah. appreciative of the performance that video has achieved because it's still to date my best performing video you also made some videos about niche categories in nes tetris uh, like you uh, your last video was the perfect game of nes tetris and how a task could help with that but also you made a video about slow running yeah and i don't remember how i got into that topic but that was also another one I had reached out to NGC Man for and said, you know, would you be finally making a video covering this? And then asking a few more additional questions. And I think the same has carried over to things like Minecraft speedruns, where I just love the individual quirks and that it's not just about, you know, high level play in the one main category, which of course in Tetris is going for the highest score, is that yeah. even in this game that is incredibly simplistic on a base level, you can still do so many more things with it. And so the slow running was very fun to just dive into a topic that wasn't directly related to the world record or competition. And I think that's also a video that I had a lot of fun making. And I mean, seeing that uh, in the time that I've taken a bit of a break from Tetris videos, uh, there's been new categories. Like, of course, uh, double kill screen has become more popular because it's on uh, the Tetris gym cart uh, crunch, yeah. the, the one that shrinks the playing field a bit more. <laughs> and even ones that I had been planning to cover, but never got around to, like Checkerboard. And I mean, I I love seeing players break games in 
individual ways away from just like the main categories. Super interesting to me. Like you said, it's so interesting that you have a very simple game with a very simple, uh, with very simple graphics and all that, but you can do so much with it. We now have 1v1, we have 2v1, uh, uh, we have uh, Classic Deathless Wars, we have a full season with a Classic Deathless Gauntlet, multiple regional communities, a, a big world championship, a big monthly tournament. So it's only growing and growing. And like we have now four or five YouTubers who are creating content. We have a podcast about it. Um, it's it's there is so much going on with a NES game that ha that got released in 1989. Yeah, it's gained its own identity in a way where you have all these individual communities embedded in a greater community. And I think that's why NES games in particular are super cool is because they enable that because with those limitations, you have people who understand, you know, the code inside and out and can do all these extra things with it or things that people had ideas of, like someone had to think of the first idea of what if we just saw what you could do with a checkerboard of just random Tetris pieces and it plays off of things like B-type. And so, yeah, seeing how creative people can get definitely pushes me to also try to be more creative in the content that covers it because they're, they're doing all the work. They've already produced the stories. It's just my ability to cover and shed some light to the stories yeah but one thing that i find very interesting is that you don't want to play competitive uh, tetris because uh, of the anxiety and that people uh, are watching you and seeing you play but you're comfortable enough to release videos about it and um provide the world with your video and with your opinion and your style of it so I think part of that would go into just the dynamics that come into producing videos in that there's a lot more room for error and also just improvement in general. I think part of the worry for me is just that, you know, in a match like a Tetris match, so much can go right, but also so much can go wrong. You know, that's kind of how yeah. the game of Tetris uh, happens. But for a video, of course, it's a slower process is that I don't have to worry about uh, like if there is any point where i'm like i worry about how i explain this or i worry about the flow in the video or just how i dictate or present uh, my side of it uh i have the ability to modify things shift things around re-record things and so i think that has been an entry for me to uh be more confident with producing videos and at the same time just enjoying the process because if you go back to my channel in 2021 i mean those videos are drastically different from some of the videos I've produced now in production quality, how I present myself, how excited I am about the topics, but it's still an enjoyable process because at the end of the day, I'm making the videos for a greater audience, not just myself. Yeah. And so it's taking enjoyment in that rather than worrying as much. So what are the topics that you want to cover in the next couple of months? So part of my hesitancy with returning to videos is that I had planned to make a video about the CTWC, but of course in fashion like uh, people like GameScout, uh, it's a pretty hefty topic. And in fact, for him, it's probably even a greater task because of course he was there and helped with curating the event and covering the event firsthand. I do not have the ability, I didn't have the ability to do that. So yeah. uh, that's still a video that I have in the works. I don't think it'll be the next video I upload, but it's definitely something that I'm have a work in progress where thankfully some people like uh, Rhubarb, Foiled, L, 
uh, have provided uh, uh, background footage or footage from the tournament that I can use in the video. So I really appreciate that. Uh, but in terms of videos in the near future, uh, we had talked about it earlier. I think I would like to uh, complete a video covering the transition to the uh, new double kill screen. And yeah. rather than covering some of the stats, because Scout has his fantastic video covering uh, whether a line cap was needed in the first place, just some of the gameplay and uh, per, uh, style perspective of if this is a right fit for competitive Tetris going forwards. So that would be a great video yeah. to cover. And then, like we said, things like crunch, checkerboard. Uh, there's a couple of video topics from late 2021 that I think might deserve a revisit. For instance, uh, talking about whether it's more advantageous to play left-handed versus right-handed, because, of course, uh, that has shifted a lot in terms of tapping and now rolling. There actually yeah. might be a legitimate case for there being an advantage for using right-handed rolling, because if you flip the controller upside down, there's more surface area. And so I think it would be fun to go into the backlog of some of the videos that I sort of put aside because I wasn't sure if I could uh, do them in a correct manner. Uh, and yeah, it'd be fun to revisit those and see how those would fare today. I think it's it's so great to see that you talked about a couple of topics and then it's it's amazing to see that we can have multiple content creators, uh, content creators, and then they cover the same topics, but cover different aspects of that topic. Yeah, definitely. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that was I think one of my worries earlier on, and it was uh, Gamescot, I believe, and I'm really appreciative of this. Uh, helped explain it a bit more in that you know it, there shouldn't be as much worry about if I cover a topic, worrying about if I'm going to tread over the same things as, you know, if Scout had released a video earlier on or worrying about how my videos would compare, is that it's all for the sake of just uh, explaining this wonderful small community in a way that I can get people who aren't just super into NES games or into Tetris in general, it's just getting them engaged. Like, that's a very wonderful thing that we've been able to do. Yeah. And so that's pushed my motivation further, and I think that will be the thing that helps get me back into making videos, because I'm Taking a bit of a hiatus, longer than I wanted to, unfortunately. So the first video coming back is about? Uh, level 39, and whether it is a good change or bad change. I say good change, but uh, the, the double kill screen discussion will most likely be the next video. Hey, one more topic before before I let you go, and it's a, it's a topic that's a question that I saw on a... Uh, level 29 unlisted video on your start uh, on your channel and that is um the goop house lore oh my goodness <laughs> so that's very interesting because that derived from a minecraft server that i hosted with a few friends an smp server uh back in late 2020 called goober smp and yeah. it was sort of just a project just to see if i could uh, create a community of people who are interested in Minecraft because that's my main interest that predates Tetris. And that was also yeah. at the same time that I ended up picking up Tetris, but then fast forward to a year later, I'm not sure how it started, but I uh, started playing Bed Wars, which is a Minecraft minigame that focuses on team-based combat of uh, trying to destroy other teams' beds, which are like a spawn point, I guess. Anyways, what had happened was, I think word had got out about the server and that I had uh become uh more of a mainstay in things like the vc 
in CTM and in a couple other servers and had gotten yeah. people to join uh, the Goop House Discord server to play Bedwars. And so that had created its own little mini community, which included a few, I guess, in-jokes, including trying to get uh, people in the CTWC to shout out Goop House. And so I think it was uh, two people in the top eight ended up doing it. It was Tristop and Huff. And I, I feel bad to just put it on them uh, out of nowhere because I think, I'm not sure if they were even in Goop House at the time, but it was, uh, had a great run, but that server has kind of fallen a bit defunct because uh, there hasn't been as much interest, of course, that was after uh, the second year of the whole COVID phase. So we don't really have as much free time anymore to goof around yeah. in Minecraft and other things, but it, it had its run. And my last question for you uh, is, what are your plans for the future, YouTube-wise and Tetris-wise? So, oh, that's a loaded question. Um, in terms of just YouTube, I think getting better at storytelling and expanding a bit more than what I've been doing now because I've been very distracted in, or at least sidetracked in making YouTube shorts for Minecraft and Minecraft speedrunning because I really enjoy that topic. Uh, finding some balance in being able to do that do Tetris videos, and then other topics, like either Minecraft or uh, in the real world. I'm not sure where that would come into play. But I will say that the biggest positive that has come out of YouTube and uh, realizing I had this sort of knack was that I uh, become inspired to pick up uh, media. And uh, so in college, I have shifted to uh, wanting to enter the media school. I had been doing business beforehand. And so yeah. that would tie in directly into what I'm already doing right now. And I don't have any specific goals for that going forwards, but I think out of all things, out of all positives with uh, sort of helping create uh, content that is devoted to this amazing community and all that is given to me, uh, one of the best things has been realizing that it's it extends beyond just this small little knack that it's sort of a passion for explaining and telling these stories. So... Uh, getting more specific with Tetris, I think just being a bit more involved in the uh, competitive scene, like we mentioned, and that hopefully the best thing I can look forward to is being at CTWC in uh, October and then making a video about it shortly after. That'd be the most exciting thing to cap the year. Koba, thanks so much for joining me on PDP this month. It was a truly pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this has been a great experience. And with that all being said, this will be the end of the Peace Dependency Podcast. Thank you all for listening and make sure you follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Don't forget to join the Tetris Friendly's Discord server and follow me on the socials at SirMazer. For now, have a great Tetris month and I will see you all in March. Bye. The Peace Dependency Podcast was brought to you by Total Rad Ness. Shop your goofy food controller, TWO merch and CTWC approved hardware on TotalRedNES.com. <laughs>